Welcome to the Weekly Warrior Podcast, where we are forging genuine human connection through fitness, health, mindset, and nutrition. Let's get to the show with your hosts, Jared Bradford, Connor Edelbrock, and Corey Mueller. Welcome to another insightful, thoughtful, stunning, <laughs> charismatic episode yeah. of the Flannel Boy Podcast. The Flannel Boys. <laughs> this is the Weekly Warrior Podcast. You are with Jared and Corey Mueller. This is going to be uh, episode number something. We don't know yet. I think it's going to be 105. Is it? 105 yeah. or 106. Yeah. Somewhere in there. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to be here with you. I'm happy to be here with you as well. I like your flannel. Thank you. I like your flannel. Where's it Thanks. from? Man, I don't know. I got this as like a Christmas gift many years ago. Mm, Costco. <laughs> probably. Costco. <laughs> yeah, probably. Yeah, it's very nice. Costco's yeah. got some good stuff. Yeah. Right, okay. Well, I think uh, you're going to tell me something today. You're going yeah. to take the lead on this, and I'm very, very happy to yeah. be listening and give my interjections and have fun. Yeah, so a little bit of backstory. We'll start off. Bones. I want you to imagine. So it's like eight, the year 1800. You are on the journey westward into the Louisiana Purchase with Lewis and Clark. Captain Lewis and Clark, right? You're traveling through the plains, the great plains of America, what some would call the Midwest. Let's let's call it Oklahoma. You've been in Oklahoma. Sort of nice, pleasant rolling hills. Not much there, is there? No. Imagine you're crossing these plains with nice prairie grasses blowing in the breeze. Amber waves of grain, as one might call them. That's in a song. <laughs> Keep imagining. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and you come over a ridge. Mm-hmm. And all you can see, black hides, huge bison, as far as the eye can see. One might say there's 20,000, 30,000. It's hard to fathom how many there are in this particular moment. But there's definitely more in this one view than anyone has probably ever seen. That's what we're going to talk about today, Bones. We're going to talk Mm. about the American buffalo. In that time, do you know how many buffalo that roamed in America? Let's say say North America. North America. North America, so Canada. Yeah. yeah. Shit. I don't think it's crazy to think it, it was uh, 1.5, 2 mil. I think the last time we talked, you guessed about something and yeah. you were, I'm glad you were off then and I'm glad you were off now. Uh, okay. Let me, let me, can I, can, uh, can I try again? Yeah. Go ahead. 25 million Buffalo. 25 million. You're getting closer. Fuck. So. They ranged from about 30 to 32 million. Hmm. There was a lot of them. 
we had our Ranger Operations Academy a couple of weeks ago, and we were getting ready to work on some construction class. And there was a book laying on the desk, and it was this book right here, American Buffalo by Steve Rinella, who is the meat eater guy on Netflix. Um, oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so I... It was interesting because buffalo have been popping up a lot in my life in the last few years and in random places, too. So, like, we went to a Mumford & Sons concert in 2019 right after uh, I moved back to Michigan. Connor and I were dating, like, pretty fresh still. And the poster for that concert was mountains that, like, evolved into a buffalo head. It was a buffalo, (laughs) buffalo body, buffalo head, which were made out of mountains. And they just kept appearing in weird ways. And so anytime I see one now, I sort of, I take notice to it. And this book was sitting on the table and I asked the ranger who was sitting there and I said, is that book any good? And he looked at me, he said, yep. (laughs) And I went on Amazon and I bought it. (laughs) Classic. Yeah. I mean, it looked good. Got the American flag on it. It, uh, it all spoke like immediately the Buffalo on it. I mean, he looks Big animal, American flag, stoic name, and everything yep. looks great. What's yeah. not to love? So I bought the book and started reading it, and it started sort of a process. And what we're going to do today, we're going to go through some things in the book. This whole book is a tale about his journey hunting a wild buffalo in Alaska, but we're not going to focus on that. So there's going to be a little bit of that. But most of this is going to be sort of the cultural significance, the spiritual meanings, why buff- well, you know, buffalo are important, some, yeah. some facts yeah. about them. Okay. I'm ignorant as all heck because I had no idea there were <laughs> buffalo in Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. They're, I mean, buffalo were once the most widespread herb- herbivore species on the continent. Wow. Only, they were only sep- um, not on the coast. So, like... The deserts of Southern California, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, and then like northern New England, so Maine and all those. They didn't have buffalo? Those were the only places that didn't have them. So the really hot places and then the really like the corner tip of the, you know, of New England. So that that number, 32 million, Mm -hmm. that's staggering. I wonder what is like, what is like the buffalo of today now? Because we killed them all. What is like. What, what do we have? Thirty-two million. Is that like deer? Is there? Th- yeah, probably deer. So yeah, we're gonna. You are. I mean, you kind of said it. We already kind of know buffalo were damn near extinct. So we're gonna get into yeah. some stuff. And I'm just gonna like give a forewarning to you, but you have to listen. So get over it. But to anyone listening, there's going to be some historical descriptions of some practices that happened that are going to be a little shocking. And if that type of stuff is not what you want to hear, then uh, it's going to be later in the podcast and maybe just don't. But the whole point of this is to learn. We learn from history. We have to, Mm -hmm. we have to make better choices because of some of the bad things that have happened in the past. So you mentioned 32 million Buffalo. Yeah. The deer population is 33 million today. So basically Mm. Buffalo basically used to be like deer. Yeah, and we manage deer really responsibly. Like, yeah. imagine if we could do that with buffalo. I imagine that we somehow in this story, you're going to let me know that we did not do that. Yes, we're going to get there. 
as you like to say, we'll put a pin in that. We'll put a pin in that. Put a pin in it. Put a pin in All right. All right, here we go. So we're fast-forwarding a little bit from the start. Steven Ranella had found a buffalo skull. He kicked it while he was on a hunt somewhere in Montana, and it was very old. Didn't know how old, but it was obviously not attached to a buffalo anymore, and it was buried horn deep. And so he picked it up, and this led him on this journey of discovery about the buffalo. Ever since that day, I'm always a little surprised by the way in which a buffalo can come up out of nowhere and suddenly pop into your life. It's actually become a game that I like to play with other people. The game has to do with random associations. I'll be talking to friends or acquaintances at a party, and I'll try to seduce their interest with compelling buffalo-related facts and trivia. For instance, I might explain that there's a town or city named Buffalo in 18 states, though the most famous of these is Buffalo, New York, obviously. That leads into my first point. The Buffalo, that I, and I already said this, Buffalo started popping up a lot in my life, especially when I started getting my shit together, right? So I looked up Buffalo symbolism and what that sort of looks like. Um, and this is some stuff that I found. The Buffalo reminds you of your, you, of your place in the grander scheme of things. We must work together for the greater good because Buffalo are a herd animal right they work together Mm -hmm. if they're alone chances are they're gonna die that's just how that works participate with a tribe rather than live on the sidelines or as a loner buffalo also may symbolize you taking back your strength your truth in times of conflict as everyone has probably heard that's listened to this podcast that was sort of me in that moment so that piece that i read and then some of the meanings, that's kind of, that's, that's where this all started for me as well. We're going to talk about where they were. Back to the book. Buffalo ranged across the continent in herds, numbering from fewer than 10 to more than 10,000. So a herd could either be 10 buffalo or 10,000 buffalo. Hmm. The buffalo was one of the mo- one of the most, perhaps the most numerous large mammal to ever exist on the face of the earth. Around 32 million lived on the Great Plains alone. So the Great Plains is that big area that ranges from like southern United States, Texas, and goes all the way up into Canada. The thumb-shaped band of arid grasslands paralleling the east flank of the Rocky Mountains from the Texas Panhandle to southern Canada. Four to eight million more buffalo were thought to be scattered to the north, south, east, and west of the plains. So let's think about buffalo in terms of the meat. For discussion's sake, say the total population of buffalo living in North America averaged out at 1,000 pounds apiece. So each buffalo is about 1,000 pounds. That's 40 billion pounds of buffalo. If a butcher is thorough and careful, a a buffalo will yield about 60% usable meat. So let's say 24 billion pounds of buffalo meat ranged across North America in the early 17th century. If every man, woman, and child now living in the United States, so that's 300 million of us, roughly, got together for a buffalo meat party of those proportions, that party would well outlast the Woodstock Festival of 1969, which was quite long. We'd each have 80 pounds of buffalo meat to go through. 80 pounds. Imagine rolling to Woodstock with your buffalo meat. Yeah. So... At the time of European contact, so when Europeans came to 
uh, the Americas, mm-hmm. if they were to throw that same party with the same amount of buffalo, the party could have lasted, and they're just eating buffalo meat, could have lasted yeah. closer to a year. Wow. Just eating buffalo meat with how Who's many that? there were. <laughs> so we're going to fast forward now to 1911. And there was a man named James Earl Frazier. And who is James Earl Frazier, you might ask? Well, he was working on uh, a new coin design for the United States Mint. And there was a lot of, that he was trying to figure out what he wanted it to be. And he decided on the buffalo. So I'm going to go back to the book now. In all probability, Frazier, who was born toward the end of the wild buffalo's reign on the Great Plains in 1876, would never have seen a free-roaming buffalo, because this is 1911. Frazier claimed that the model for his coin was a buffalo named Black Diamond, which live in the pasture at the Bronx Zoo. This is somewhat conjectural, as the Bronx Zoo never had a Black Diamond. However, the Central Park Menagerie did. The bull had been born to a pair of buffalo that once belonged to the Barnum Circus, and it lived in a very small cage. There's actually a picture of this buffalo in the cage. It's tiny. I saw it. It's a tiny little cage, and it was like, how are you keeping this buffalo in yeah. this cage? <laughs> PJ, was it Barnum? Barnum Circus? PJ yeah. Barnum, whatever the fuck that yeah. dirtbag's name was. Yeah, Loki at Scumbag. <laughs> great movie. Yeah, good, great movie. Awesome movie. Yeah, right. I mean, my favorite soundtrack to work out to, but yeah. Seriously, it's great. Anyway. Piece of shit. Okay, cool. <laughs> People have argued various theories uh, concerning this confusion. Either that Frazier was correct about the buffalo's name and confused about either its location, or that he was correct about the location but got the name wrong. Most evident evidence suggests right buffalo, wrong location. The coin itself is the most compelling piece of evidence for that because the buffalo on it looks as if he's accustomed to tight confines. One critic of the nickel summed it up. Its head droops as if it had lost all hope in the world, and even the sculptor was not able to lift it up. So when they're talking about the coin, it was a nickel, and there was a buffalo on the back. And those coins, those uh, nickels are actually pretty sought after these days. Imagine the coin, it's a picture of a buffalo, but the head just like droops down and it looks just super sad. And this is in 1911 when there are virtually no buffalo left. And this buffalo has been pretty accustomed to being like that quote said, staying in a cage. And so even when you, if you ever see one of those nickels, buffalo just looks sad. I think, man, I feel like, are they pretty rare? Because I feel like I've had one. Yeah, they are. They are pretty rare these days. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Yep. Yep. Sad Buffalo nickel. Yeah. We're going to fast forward again. Current numbers suggest that there's about 500,000 Buffalo currently living on the continent now. Currently 500,000. Currently about 500,000. And that is less than 33 million. (laughs) Yes. This is a little bit less. Yeah. A little bit less. There were after all was said and done with, and we'll talk about the massive buffalo Um, Mm kill-offs, there was like 384 buffalo, 325 in 1885, down from 32 million. Wait. Yeah. I need a minute. 32 million. Yes. Like when Lewis and Clark sort of went west. Yeah, the old boys, yeah. Yeah, the old boys. And and by 1885, which is like 
85 years later, 325. 325. Mm -hmm. Period. Period. No, no decimal. Nope. 325. <laughs> That's fucked up. It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it's crazy. You went from 33 million mm -hmm. to 325. And basically a grandpa's like, like yeah. in a lifetime. Most of that killing happened in about a 10 year period. Holy shit. We're going to get there. Put a pin in that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, we're going to build a big pin board then. Let's yeah. fucking go. So I'm going to, I'm going to say a name. Sam okay. walking coyote. Sam walking coyote. He's very important. He lived amongst native Americans, him and his wife did. And he managed to get his hands on six Buffalo that he tamed. He had a small herd. Sorry. Is this in the, in the time of 325 Buffalo? This is like, by 1884, he had a herd of about 13. Okay, so he's got a good chunk of the buffalo. Yeah, I mean, 13 okay. out of 325 is a pretty yeah. good amount. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Um, so he ends, up, uh, he ends up dead, and the buffalo oh. gets sold off well, to somebody else. That was quick. But I needed, that's important background information, and we're going to figure out why. Okay. So, fast forward here, the U.S. finally figures out, like, oh, shit, we should probably do something about this. These buffalo that Sam Walking Coyote had were sort of bought and sold and transferred around, and the U.S. government ended up taking possession of them. And at this point, Alaska was just a territory of the United States. Mm -hmm. So, there was something called the National Bison Range, and that's where... This herd ended up. So, back to the book. The U.S. territory of Alaska acquired excess buffalo from the National Bison Range. The acquisition was spearheaded by a group of hunters from Fairbanks, Alaska. They wanted to introduce Rocky Mountain elk to the region, but at the time, no one was selling elk. They settled for buffalo and got a good deal. The range charged only for crating and shipping and sent up to 23 head. The animals traveled by rail to Seattle where they were loaded on a barge and shipped up to Whittier, Alaska, near the base of the Kenai Peninsula. From there, they rode uh, on the train up to Fairbanks and arrived on June 27, 1928. And after a short stopover, the buffalo were loaded onto trucks and driven 100 miles to the southeast and let loose near their final destination, which is now the town of Delta Junction. Because Alaska was still 31 years away from statehood, the animals fell under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. The government wanted to protect the buffalo herd until it was large enough to withstand a limited amount of hunting by humans. The plan worked. By 1940, Alaska had become home to upwards of 500 descendants of Sam Walking Coyote's buffalo. This is on the rebound, sort of. They're finally yeah. starting to rebound. <laughs> I'm trying to build a little bit of hope before yeah. I get into the really... Sad okay. shit. <laughs> oh, we're not there yet. I figured like 33 million to 325. We kind of purposely skipped over the horrible part. No, that no, I want to hear. No. So Sam walking coyote, he had 13 descendants. He went dead. Yep. Sold the Buffalo. And now they, from they that, yeah, they bounced around and yeah, they bounced around and the herd sort of rebuilt. Um, and actually today, 
So, like I said, there's yeah, there's five hundred thousand buffalo in North America, right? Okay. Yeah. Where do you think the largest herd is actually located? Alaska. No. Okay. Uh, it is the, the largest wild herd is located in Yellowstone National Park. Oh yeah, yeah. The Good the, ma- the majority of buffalo are on ranches. They're not actually considered sure. wild. So there's a little bit more information on that. It's very cool to see videos of people in Yosemite or not Yosemite Yellowstone and see these buffalo just kind of like walking down the road. Dude, the funniest thing about those videos is the way like people try to interact with these animals. Yeah. They think buffalo are like cows. They're not. They are they look similar to cows, but buffalo are wild. They're wild animals and they are very ornery. That's why like people don't te- like typically want to farm raise bison because yeah. They don't, you know, they're very ornery. They don't yeah. uh, cooperate well with people telling them what to do. <laughs> well, yeah, because probably when people first came near them, they fucking slaughtered them. And she's like, no, I don't want to be near any of you things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're they're wild animals. Even in yeah. even in ranch hands these yeah. days, they're still wild animals. They still, you know, they still gore people. They still maul oh. people. And in in Yellowstone, it happens... They, there's more bison attacks in Yellowstone than there are grizzly bear attacks. So people, I think, because people probably know, like, hey, grizzly bears are dangerous. Yeah. They don't know that a bison will kill you. Yeah. <laughs> like it's kind of like the like the hippo lot. Like they're land hippos. Hippos, they're not notorious for like, oh, da- hippos so dangerous. Right. But hippos are fucking mean, and they will rip your everything apart. Right. Out of your body. Yep. Buffaloes are kind of. Unknown they're, killers. Yeah, they they're definitely not on the scale of hippos, but they're I mean they're pretty close. They're just wild. You know what I mean? Like you get too close to them, they're gonna screw you up. They're gonna they're gonna say, "Hey, get away yeah. from me." Yeah. <laughs> the next little bit of the book goes on to talk about some of the ancient history of large land mammals in North America. They crossed the Bering Straits, which was a land bridge at one point. So. Shit, man, back in the day, back in like the Pleistocene era, we had woolly mammoths, we had giant bears, we had giant sloths, I mean... Saber-tooth. Saber-tooth tigers, you know, all sorts of fun stuff. There was also even bigger versions of buffalo. Wow. And so they they were massive, like giant. They had horns that were like six feet wide. Fuck me, how much did they weigh, do you know? There wasn't any information in this but there there was a lot there was different variations and so the 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 buffalo that we have now is a descendant of those that sort of evolved to be a little more mobile so like buffalo can run about 30 miles an hour these bigger ones weren't able to do that so they were picked off by early man and also predators you know yeah so that that's what the next couple chapters talk about um there's lots of different types of bison most of them they're in North America. Woolly mammoths, like I said, they're in North America. So I'm going to give a little bit of an excerpt of some of the things that were happening. So while there was some interchange going from North America to Siberia, that's on that land bridge, such as the horse, there was also giant horses. <laughs> uh, the predominance of faunal exchanges went in the other direction, from Siberia to North America. It seems that the first of several bison migrations happened during the second to last glacial episode, which was about 140,000 years ago. 
Scientists often refer to these early arrivals as the Eurasian steppe bison. In cave art, paleolithical European hunters, the steppe bison is often portrayed with a curvaceous horn, a large shoulder hump, and a mane so thick that it appears to be like a second hump. The steppe bison shared the North American landscape with host of bizarre and fascinating animals that I wish were still around. Flat-headed peccaries and beavers that were the mo- size of modern pigs. Can you imagine a beaver? Oh, dude, good luck getting that thing out of Yeah, me, right? Man. <laughs> He'd be eating like, me. <laughs> no, man. Yeah, you're not going to have a job. Yeah. You'll be dead. Yeah, I'd be dead, right? <laughs> An armadillo the size of a black bear. Uh, what? Yeah, the ox-sized Jefferson. Well, no, you, what are you talking about? Dude, it was a wild you time. You can't just say an armadillo the size of a black bear. Um, and, uh, just uh, it gets better, dude. The ox-sized Jefferson's ground sloth, which had uh, lips capable of gripping things, the twenty-foot-long elephant-sized ground sloth. So there's another type of ground sloth, okay. which dragged itself along on its knuckles and used its tail as a support when it stood up to feed on leaves. That's like a dinosaur sloth. That's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. And then the one-ton giant short-faced bear, which had cat-like teeth and a skull that was almost as wide as it was long. There was as many as six different camels, including one that was seven feet tall at the shoulder, two horses, including one that it may have been striped like a zebra, several elephants, including the five-ton Colombian mammoth, ten-ton woolly mammoths, and the forest-dwelling American mastodon. So, like... We had a lot of elephants and large land mammals in this time. What a wild time. It's like yeah, wild things started so tiny, right? We are probably like microscopic creatures. And then we evolved and somehow got to dinosaurs. <laughs> it's just magic. I don't know. Millions of years of magic. And then we're slowly like getting smaller and smaller again. What yeah. a wacky period. Like Because right? all of it's like the animals we have today, just giant. Yeah. We feel like like the blue whale and that the African yeah. ma- uh, elephant, all that type of stuff, huge. And then it gets even better. There's also an impressive array of large cats, including the 275-pound dirk-toothed cat, the 400-pound Ice Age jaguar, the 600-pound skim- scimitar cat, and the 700-pound saber-toothed cat, and the 850-pound American lion. And then also two American cheetahs of indeterminate size. So it was basically like Africa, like a Serengeti. That's fascinating. I didn't, I didn't know we had lions here. Yeah. So if you can imagine, I mean, that's a pretty wild time. We had lions, we had jaguars, we had elephants, we had woolly mammoths, the giant bison, giant sloths, giant bears. I mean, just vibing. Yeah. That and I, the reason I wanted to share that is just to share how wild our continent used to be. Pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. So we're going to fast forward. We're, we're going to talk about Buffalo, modern Buffalo again, and how some of their adaptability has come around cold. So I found this really interesting. Back to the book. When it comes to the cold, Buffalo have a lot of anatomical tricks up their sleeve. Proportionate to body size, the Buffalo's trachea is larger than that of other large land mammals. When it takes a breath of cold air, The air is pre-warmed inside the trachea before it moves down into the animal's lungs. This way, the ambient temperatures have a diminished effect on the animal's core body temperature, which is 101.6 degrees Fahrenheit. A buffalo's coat of hair is also another handy adaption. The hair above its eyes is so short that it looks like somebody buzzed it with uh, electric clippers. 
and this prevents freezing water from accumulating against their sensitive eye tissues, which, believe it or not, they don't have good eyesight. There's pictures of them, like, standing, like, this far away from a sign at Yellowstone. Like, they're just right up to it, just, like, they probably headbutted it or something. <laughs> God, no wonder we picked them off. Ugh, they're yeah. Tied, they're just these big stupid things. Yeah. All right. There was a scientific test done, um, and basically what they did, the re- these researchers put animals into airtight, insulated boxes resembling horse trailers, and they were calves, so they were little guys. They subjected each calf to increasingly cold temperatures, and they were looking for the moment when the animal's metabolic rate increased as a response to the cold. And they had all types of different cattle, so they had like normal cows and yaks and highland cattle from Scotland. So... At negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit, which is really cold, the buffalo's metabolic rate was still decreasing as an energy-saving strategy. So the buffalo's critical temperature remains unknown because no one's gotten a box cold enough to find out what it actually is. That's amazing. It's really good at being warm in the cold. Yeah. I. They literally couldn't get the box cold enough to figure out when... Basically, it would start to go into survival mode. The metabolic rate yeah. would raise. You know what I mean? Right, right. Couldn't figure it out because <laughs> they That's can't awesome. get it. They can't get it cold enough. <laughs> Fuck yeah, Buffalo! Keep your secrets. Yeah, <laughs> right. All right. So we're gonna fast forward again here, as we are doing. There was something called the Treaties of the Medicine Lodge. So it was struck in eighteen or uh, October of eighteen sixty-seven between the U.S. government and five thousand Kiowa. Comanche, Cheyenne, and Arapaho from the Southern Great Plains. So these are Native American tribes. Very good. The tribes wanted to protect their native buffalo hunting grounds to the south of the Arkansas River from the Euro-American encroachment. So basically, white men coming, they wanted to try to protect their native buffalo hunting grounds. Because guess what? The natives live off of buffalo. That's like Hmm. a huge part of their culture. (laughs) And they, Uh, you know, make tools and eat them and all that sort of stuff. And they did it for a long time, probably. Yeah, but the natives were not the most, they were not great conservatives of Buffalo either. There just wasn't enough of them, and they didn't have the same demand for Buffalo stuff, which we're going to get into later on. In settling the agreement, the United States formulated a clause that only a lawyer could love, giving the Indians exclusive hunting rights to south of the Arkansas River. So, quote... So long as buffalo may range thereon in such numbers as to justify the chase, end quote. Immediately following the ratification, the military turned a blind eye while European, uh, Euro-American hide hunters went in there and killed most of the buffalo. The subsequent lack of food forced the Indians to seek provisions from the government, which, you guessed it, suggested the buffalo no longer ranged in numbers as to justify the chase. So that basically... uh, that treaty didn't mean shit. <laughs> yeah. After the treaty no longer meant anything, the U.S. military uh, escorted these hide hunters to kill whatever buffalo were left in that area. Sure. Quote, One could blame human behavior for the trouble, but it's probably just as useful to blame the buffalo. Left to the own devices, these animals refuse to locate themselves in a convenient place at a convenient time. It's he's sort of like poking fun at people where it's like, why can't they just go somewhere else? It's like kind of what we do with beavers now. It's like you can make a dam and do whatever you want. Just do it somewhere else that doesn't impact yeah. us. 
Leave me alone. <laughs> right. These people are, they're upset that the Buffalo aren't doing what they want when they want them to do it. That's pretty typical. Sounds right. What people do, right? Yeah. Sounds any, you know, inconvenience. Kill them. Pretty much. Yep. Well, okay. So I don't know. I, I imagine we're going to get to the part where things turn south for the Buffalo bad. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm sharing a lot of like background scientific information yeah. that some people might not find interesting, but these animals are very complex and they're yeah. not just cows. I think a lot of people look at them like, oh, those are just like fancy cows. <laughs> fancy cows. <laughs> I mean, there's, have you seen a Buffalo in person? Yeah. So when I was growing up, we have a cabin in Canada and when I was growing up and we go up there, there was actually a Buffalo ranch right on the way. And so every time we'd go to the cabin, we'd drive past this big herd of Buffalo. That was, so I've seen them up close. They're big as they're super big. Very, they're crazy. Extremely large. Yeah. yeah. And, and extremely intimidating mm-hmm. creatures. Like anybody who wants to try to kill this thing, that's not another animal. Like I could see like a pack of cheetah taking down a Buffalo or something. Yeah. Or a pack of lions to take down a single Buffalo. Yeah. Like any dude, singular human trying to take down a buffalo, like you, if you get near this thing, it's game over. These, these things are huge. And I would imagine, like, the rational person, I guess, would be like, what, I mean, 80 pounds of meat for one person was what you said earlier. If everyone ate that for, because right. each buffalo dressed, so like when it's butchered, will yeah. give you 400 ish pounds of meat. 400. Yeah. That's just insane. Yeah. So like, I mean, okay. Like a single Buffalo could really sustain a solid group of people for a winter. Yes. Yeah. Without being assholes and overkilling. Right. Yeah. So this is where things get interesting because now we're going to start exploring the archaeology of when humans started to interact with these Buffalo because for a while there was no human interaction like the woolly mammoths, all these all these big crazy animals that hadn't seen humans yet are about to get introduced. So this is where the book starts to explore some of these things. And you kind of actually, it was a good segue, you said you have to be crazy to go one-on-one with a buffalo. People got ingenious, and we're going to, this is where we're going oh, with yeah. it. I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, this is where we're going. <laughs> I, I'm eager to hear about the good ideas about taking down buffalo. Yeah. All right, here we go. Back to the book. Yep. One of my favorite Buffalo-related stories begins on Thursday, August 27, 1908, with the destruction of the town of Folsom, New Mexico. That afternoon, about 15 inches of rain fell on Johnson Mesa. The rain came down so hard that it overfilled empty wash tubs that were lying outside. The dry Cimarron River, which drains much of the Mesa, quickly overran its banks. A resident at the Crowfoot Ranch in Colfax County placed an urgent phone call to the operator in Folsom, about 10 miles away. The operator, her name was Miss Sarah Rook, made a series of frantic calls warning the residents of Folsom that a flash flood was bearing down on town. Her warnings were largely ignored, but she stayed at her switchboard, continuing her pleas. When the water hit at about midnight, waves lifted Miss Rook's home right off its foundation and carried her away. Water swept through the town's streets in five-foot waves. The railroad bridge gave out. The Folsom newspaper later reported that John Young's house had remained intact because he'd nailed it to a fence post. Young's stable 
in which were tied three of three fine horses, was picked up like chaff and torn to pieces. Um, another town resident's mother survived the flood by clinging to her piano. Horses owned by the Stringfellow family were out to pasture when the flood came and carried them off. Rescue, rescuers traveled downstream at sunup. John Young's fine three horses were found downriver, all of them dead. Ugh. The Stringfellow's horses were recovered seven miles downstream from town, all of them alive except for one colt. Oh. A man lost a saddle, and then he found it among a pile of dead people on the north side of the river about a mile from town. Super cool. The Wegner family was found dead as well. Their house had been trapped in a whirlpool, and the biggest piece left was half a door. In so all... Okay, just, sorry, this is going somewhere. Just okay. stick with me here. In all, 16 bodies were recovered from uh, in the following days. There was no sign of Sarah Rook, the telephone operator, until the next spring. When Dan Harvey was burning driftwood about eight miles from town, he noticed a shoe in the pile of wood, and upon further investigation, saw that it was attached to Miss Rook's body. After the flood... A uh, ranch hand named George McJunkin rode out to fix washed-out fences. <laughs> what do you know? All the fences washed out. He comes to this place where the waters had gouged out of the channel in a place called Wild Horse Arroyo. It used to be about three feet deep. Now, it was about 13 feet deep. And at the bottom, a lot of buffalo bones were poking out of the ground. The bones, which were deeply buried and partially mineralized, caught McJunkin's attention because they were bigger than normal buffalo bones. He loaded some into his saddlebag, unaware that his discovery would set back the clock of human occupation in the New World by about 10,000 years, and also help launch a new scientific discipline and cause a minor religious controversy. <laughs> oh, God. Just the whole, yeah, just everything. Yeah. Yep. So, basically, this guy comes upon what was once a very small, sort. I'd liken it to like a ditch, and... Okay. And it's now 13 feet deep. All of these bones are exposed. But they're not like normal buffalo bones. Because at this point, uh, it's 1908. So, like, Teddy's president. There's very few buffalo left. So people know what buffalo bones look like, but these were different. So it was interesting because it dated human intervention, like I said, by about 10,000 years. So basically, they, they decided, they came to the conclusion that these bones that they found were of buffalo that were killed. Yes. And I'm going to tell you... humans. Yeah, I'm going to tell you how. Okay. Okay. Great. This There's a group of hunters. These are like prehistoric hunters, right? A group of these hunters were likely migrating from their summer hunting grounds on the open plains of the Texas Panhandle to their winter habitats in the sheltered valleys of the Rockies when they passed near Johnson Mesa. The land in the region was a low-quality habitat for game. But nonetheless, the hunters encountered a group of bison and chukas, which are the big-ass old ones. The buffalo may have been completely unaware of humans, probably never encountering them. Working together, the hunters herded at least 32 cows and calves into, the, into a steep-walled arroyo. They moved the buffalo uphill to where the arroyo ended, so the animals were effectively corralled by dirt walls. The hunters predated the North American intervention of the bow by as many as 10,000 years, and they probably killed the animals with spears thrown by an arm-powered contraption known as an atlatl. It's a contraption that you put a spear into and you hold it, and then you... It's like a ball chucker. You know, like the ball chuckers that dogs have these days? Yeah. 
imagine that made out of wood and you put a spear into it and it allowed them to throw spears like exponentially further. Yeah. It was pretty cool. So it was a bloodbath. The 32 cows and calves died in a tangled pile. So they herded these bison into this arroyo and then killed them. That was how they, because you're right. You're not going to take on all these bison one-on-one. So they found a knife. With a yeah, with spears and or knives, a single bow and arrow. Because <laughs> they didn't even they didn't even have a bow, they didn't even have a bow and arrow. Sure. Yeah. Um, so after this, there's a big rush of like archaeology. People are rushing out to try to find. They call them fulsome arrowheads, or you know what spearheads, because they're made out of like obsidian and stone and whatever. And yeah. so there's a there's a big rush west to try to get these. So that is significant. Because it's one of the first and earliest examples of sort of the way people were treating these animals, right? It's like there's so many that we forget what abundance actually looks like. (laughs) That's uh, the story of Folsom, which is crazy. But if that wouldn't have happened, we wouldn't have been able to predate, you know, human interaction with buffaloes and also all these other creatures either. It's a little, it's a little, that was a little bloody, wasn't it? Yeah. It's why we have foundations in the homes now, I think. <laughs> that was, dude, I mean, that was life on the, that was life on the. Life in the desert. I life guess. in the desert, man. Yeah. Don't expect a rainfall until uh, you get a rainfall, I guess. Yeah. So the next couple chapters talk about his interaction. So he finds the buffalo skull. And he's trying to get it dated. He's trying to find more information about it. And while so he's back to our main guy. Yes. Yeah. He found the skull. He found the skull. He's getting it carbon dated, figuring out information. But it leads him on this journey of, okay, now I want to know more about these animals. So this is when it gets interesting with, I'm going to say, more modern Native Americans. And they, so we talked about that this ancient man herding this bison, these bison into the Arroyo, killing them that way. That was pretty efficient. Well, there was these things called buffalo jumps. Buffalo jumps were pretty messed up. Pretty, pretty messed up. So the native, the, the early Native Americans had lots of ways to kill a buffalo. That They, sure. they lived on them. They relied on yeah. them. The buffalo jumps were pretty messed up. And I'm going to tell you about them now. While it seems as though buffalo jumps were in isolated, scattered usage for much of the time since the end of the Pleistocene, they came into their heyday at about the time of Christ. Their widespread usage marks the advent of large tribal alliances that gathered together on a seasonal basis to trade, socialize, and conduct religious practices. Feeding these big groups of people often required large-scale buffalo hunts. Likewise, large-scale buffalo hunting required big groups of people. The use of buffalo jumps dropped off precipitously with the introduction of the horse and other beasts of burden. The Indians could kill just as many buffalo without having to rely on luck to put animals in the proper position. And from then on, the most common hunting method was the one we know from the movies. Bare-chested, brightly painted Indians who daringly rode into running buffalo herds while firing arrows and bullets into the animals at point-blank range. So, buffalo jumps. What they would do... There would be, it's like arrow-shaped cliffs, 
And buffalo don't have good eyesight. You know, they'd either run or they'd be on horses. They'd herd these buffalo off. Oh, my God. This is fucking awful. I know where we're going. Off the cliffs. Yeah. Oh, that's super cool. And these cliffs were like 40 feet, you know, yeah. 50 feet high. So it it was pretty brutal. And there's places in North America where they found like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of buffalo bones. Yeah. An immeasurable amount of skeletons that were found uh, in these these buffalo jumps. So that was the first mark of like, man, people are really taking this animal out at a pretty alarming rate. Yeah. I mean, this is like <laughs> if you had a bunch of fucking squirrels. Yeah. That have bad eyesight. This is like if you have a bunch of fucking buffalo with bad eyesight and then you run them off a cliff. Yes. And 40 feet. What is the point? Yeah. Because I imagine a lot of them would just be so mangled and fucked up that they're rendered a lot of their meat and shit pretty useless. Well, and that's where they had to find the right spot because if it was too far of a drop, that's that's exactly what would happen. But a lot of times, Buffalo would survive the fall. So these people would have to go and basically, you know, clean up the mess. And there's some really graphic descriptions of what a buffalo jump does. And it was it was like it was hard to read some of it. And I'm not going to share that particular portion of it, but it was brutal. It was really, really brutal. But they it was efficient. And that's what they were looking for in that in that moment. It was efficient. They got what they needed from it. They were able to, you know, harvest the animals. It's is it right? But, you know, I mean. Did he go into what they, like you said, they got him what they wanted? Yeah. Did he say what they wanted? Most, so early Native Americans would use pretty much all parts of the animal. Later, in later years, they yeah. it wasn't like that as much anymore. When hide hunting came along, and we're going to talk about hide hunting and all that stuff, mm-hmm. it was more like kill them, strip them of their hides, leave them to rot. That was yeah. basically how it went. But earlier, you know, they made their, they made tents out of them. They made tools out of the bones. They ate the meat. They made bowstrings out of the tendons and the sinews. And like they used the animals. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's a lot of animals. It's a lot of animals. Yeah. That's just, that's a lot of tents and bones and tools. Just, they've better been selling them. Like, it kind of seems like the buffalo jumps were sort of the beginning of the end. It was like this okay. widespread manufactured slaughter of these animals and even people who have been into a like a slaughterhouse where like modern cattle go which are miserable places to be a buffalo jump would make them squeamish you know what i mean so not great not great so this is when things get interesting and here's how it starts the indians may have gone on selling small numbers of buffalo hides for decades longer without running out of buffalo if it hadn't been for the perfect storm of factors that struck the buffalo herds around 1870. So remember when I said Lewis and Clark? That was about 1800? Sure. Millions. Millions and millions and millions of buffalo. (laughs) This is 1870. So that's 70 years later. The Union Pacific Railroad began in Omaha in 1865 and reached Utah in 1869, where it joined another line where it became the nation's first transcontinental railroad. And at that point... A great western herd was said to be divided into a northern herd and a southern herd. 
Obviously, Buffalo continued to cross the line, and many were killed by trains and train passengers. But it was generally recognized that the tracks created a buffalo-free zone across the center of the animal's range. Subsequently, the southern herd's range was punctured and divided again and again by the Santa Fe Railroad and the Kansas Pacific branch of the Union Pacific. So besides fragmenting the buffalo's habitat and providing an efficient way to transport massive amounts of buffalo hides to the east, the railroads delivered guns and people to Buffalo country, which is not good. So basically, buffalo, the, the hide of a buffalo is called a robe. That's what it's called. And the natives started to sell and trade these. There began to be a demand for it. So that's where, you know, that's where things get interesting. Yeah, once you introduce a nice new thing. Yeah. And you hear that there's a lot of this nice thing. Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, okay, we're setting so, it up for fun things. We're going to continue to set it up. The train bring, starts bringing out, like it said, massive amounts of people, guns, and most of the time these people, it's out on the frontier, so, like, it's not great. These people are rough, they're tough, it's hard life, and they're not the best types of people. But by the summer of 1872, literally thousands of buffalo hunters had converged to the Great Plains. They had, or would soon earn, names like Buffalo Bill Comstock, Buffalo Bill Cody, Cross-Eyed Joe, Apache Bill, Buffalo Curly, Wyatt Earp, Pat Garrett, Tom Nixon, Limpy Jim Smith, Buckshot Roberts, Squirrel Eye Emery, Mr. Hickory, Prairie Dog Dave, and California Joe. As their names suggest, these fellows were not stay-at-home dad types. They were Confederate soldiers escaping the shame of the Reconstruction, so after the Civil War. Oh, yes. They were Union soldiers escaping the boredom of victory. These guys were orphans. They wanted, they were wanted alive for fraud here, wanted for dead, wanted dead for murder there. They were men like Wild Bill Hickok, who killed a man after an argument about who could kill whom the fastest. They were men like Lonesome Charlie Reynolds, who turned to buffalo hunting after he shot the arm off an army officer at Fort McPherson, Georgia. They were men like Crooked Nose Jack McCall, who was hanged for shooting Wild Bill Hickok in the back of the head. These are the types of people that are going out with guns to the Wild West. (laughs) So there's, you know, we we learn about history in school. We're like, this is what the Civil War was, and this is what happened, and then it ended. And we're like, huh, okay, yeah. And like, you assume as a kid, ignorant kid, you're like, yeah, everything is back to normal. People were free, yeah, and that was the whole point. But no, like the other, both of these sides are just like, what the fuck do we do now? Yeah, especially the South. Yeah, not that, great. Yeah, they they went and just got all these goofy ass nicknames and slaughtered animals. It's cool. I've heard a lot of the Confederates do. This is a subset. Yep. A lot of Confederates moved to Brazil, too, after the war, mm. uh, just to like continue the Confederacy, but that's separate. But, man, that's... Uh, so we've set it up. A lot of yep. great people are out there now. Yeah, so bad people moving out. Things are moving out. Uh, some Some financial things, to put things in a little bit of perspective. In 1870, a pound of butter cost 15 cents. Eight pounds of coffee cost a dollar. Land was usually bought and sold in 160-acre parcels at about $5 an acre. A two-room house measuring 16 by 22 feet could be built for $300. Hmm. So, like, things at that time, I mean, if you made a good, decent living, you could afford quite a bit. So, a good monthly wage 
for like a sheriff or a hired gun was about $250 a month. A cowboy made from 20 to $40 a month and a good prostitute could do about $200 a month. Oh yeah. Just only, only 200, huh? This is where we get into what is called hide hunters and, um, hide hunters were the ones who went out specifically to hunt Buffalo. And yeah, yeah. so it's going to get interesting now. Hide hunters were some of the grubbiest people on the face of the earth. As it was for the hippies of the late 1960s, long hair was a fad amongst them. Their blankets would be so full of lice and bed bugs that they'd lay them on ant hills so the ants could carry away the larvae. The hunters would often eat little besides buffalo. Beginners, or tender feet, would start out eating prime cuts, but within months they, su- they suffered nutrient deficiencies that caused their tongues to break out in lesions. After a while, they learned to be more like Indians and eat the buffalo's internal organs and bodily fluids as well. So they'd eat the livers and the kidneys and, you know, stuff that now it's like, yeah, this is like superhuman food (laughs) because of all the good stuff in it. Yeah. Um, But they also did nasty shit like seasoned meat with gunpowder for like a peppery effect. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's just it's logical. You don't have pepper. What are you going to do? Eat it plain. These guys were disgusting. Well, imagine being so lazy. I don't even know that yeah. you were like, yeah, let's put a, our bed on an anthill. Yeah. So we don't have to clean our lice. So I want to paint the picture that hide hunters were bad people most of the time. And I get they're trying to make a living and they're trying to do like they're yeah. not great people. So I like this part. It's a little graphic, but I like it anyway. Sure. The job had its dangers. Hide hunters sometimes died from rabies after being bitten by skunks lured into camp by the carnage. So they were killing buffalo, you know, by the thousands. Along the Yellowstone River near Glendive, Montana, a buffalo hunter was killed by a buffalo that woke up after the hunter had already cut out its tongue for dinner. Three hide hunters were killed in a prairie fire so intense that it stripped the wooden stocks off their rifles. In 1871, two hide hunters from Wisconsin froze to death in Nebraska. Their companion lost both the feet. In the Easter Easter blizzard of 1873, Upward of a hundred hide hunters froze to death on the southern Great Plains. A man's carcass was found frozen to a set of railroad tracks. Seventy amputations were performed in Dodge City after the blizzard. One man lost both arms and both of his legs. The U.S. government, also getting involved now, and made a mockery of its vow to protect Indian land from white encroachment because we made all these treaties and we said all these things that we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't do this to the natives. We wouldn't take their land. They didn't do shit. Mm-hmm. So the Indians attempted to do their job for them. So they're going to try to fight back. The Comanche were particularly vigilant against buffalo hunters. They scored, uh, or they killed scores of hide hunters, including well-known ones, well-known hide hunters such as Marshall Sewell, John Sharp, and Joe Jackson. This part's fun. They'd scalp their heads and mutilate their bodies, and sometimes they'd stake their bodies to the ground and pepper them full of arrows and bullet holes. The The Indians did not like these guys, because guess what? They, they were exterminating their life yeah. source. Of course. They, I mean, it goes back to everything about us taking over this us. Mm-hmm. I mean, Yeah, the way people, things played out, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the way that we took over everything that they have been maintaining for a millennia. Yep. Or whatever, how long, hundreds of years. So the Indians, you know, but they would often, as soon as they put up these fights, the U.S. Army would get involved. And, of course, they'd yeah. push the natives out. 
but they'd scalp hide hunters. They, you know, the, the hide hunters would become paranoid that people were stealing. They'd kill each other. There was, I mean, it was just, I mean, in the end, you got to think of how many of these things were just fucking wasted because yeah. people killed them. Hide hunters killed them and they got killed by one means or another. Yeah. And then the shit just rotted. So here's to put in perspective kind of where things are at now. So the hide boom only lasted a dozen years before the buffalo ran out. A dozen years. The first big hunting push was in the vicinity of Dodge City. In 1871, the first big year, the hide hunters killed so many animals so close to town that residents complained of the stench of rotting corpses or carcasses. That winter, a half a million buffalo hides were shipped out of Dodge. The hunters spread out from there organizing their hunts along the eastward flowing rivers from the Great Plains. They hunted out the Republican River near the Nebraska-Kansas line along the south fork of the Platte River. Hundreds of buffalo hunters lined 50 miles of the riverbank and used fires to keep buffalo from getting to the water at night. In four-day time period, they gunned down 50,000 of the thirst-crazed animals. So in four days, they killed 50,000 buffalo because they were not letting them drink the water. So they would just run at them and they'd just just shoot them. Within a year or two, the hunters had cleaned out the regions immediately north of, uh, to the north of Arkansas, the Arkansas River. And then they hunted out the watersheds of the Cimarron River, the Canadian, and the Red Rivers. The hide hunters pushed south in the Texas Panhandle and southwest Oklahoma. Soon hunters who outfitted in Dodge were straying so far from home that their hides were shipping out from Fort Worth, Texas. By 1878... There weren't enough buffalo on the southern plains to warrant the chase. Oh, good. Really sad. At least it's over now. It's not. Ah, fuck. (laughs) (sighs) When the hide hunters were done, the skinned out carcasses that they left behind rotted down and the green grasses sprang up in places where the juices oozed. The green grass turned brown in the fall, and the carcasses were picked down to the bone by scavengers. So these guys, all they would take, tongues, yeah. hides. Why tongue? Eat it? It was, yeah, they would eat it, and they would sell it. It was a big commodity huh. for whatever, it was sold for whatever reason. Buffalo uh, tongue. The bones turned white in the sun. At the moment, it might have seemed as though there was nothing more we could get out of the buffalo. There was. Makers of fine bone china began to purchase the best of the bones, those that weren't too dry or weathered, burned to ash, and added to ceramics ceramics formulas. The bones gave American and English-produced porcelains a translucency and whiteness that could compete with imported oriental china. Mm. So now, people are going out and picking up bones to grind and turn into, you know, materials. It's... Horrible. It's like it's like the ivory tusks with elephants. Like, yeah, it's so selfish. Yep. And the thing, it's, it's so really it's so short sighted. And I think yeah. this is this is why I felt some of this stuff is is graphic, obviously, but I felt compelled to share it because it's short sightedness on our part. Because there was so much abundance, we thought it would never end. We never right. knew that the abundance can end. And then all of a sudden, in twelve years, dude, in twelve years, mm-hmm. they killed. That many animals. Yeah. Just absolutely insane. It's alarming. It's, I mean, it's genocide. Straight up. Yeah. And it's for incredibly. Selfish reasons. Horrible selfish reasons for China. For China. Yeah. For like, yeah, fine Chinese 
And fertilizers too. Fertil- okay, making bowls and little knickknacks and whatever the fuck that didn't is probably don't exist today. Yeah. And they people, didn't even people, use the meat. They were no, they didn't. They just rotted. The car there's pictures of I looked these pictures up. There's pictures of these plains areas where there's thousands of uh buffalo carcasses with yeah. heads still on, hides on the heads, hides gone off the bodies, meat. Sure. Totally intact, and it's just sickening. Sure, it's just sickening, man. Um, um, so you made a statement earlier. You said Buffalo are dumb. Yeah, well, I, I was gonna say something too. Like, for for to have a field of thousands of buffalo, dead buffalo. Yeah. I mean, eventually we, especially the white white people, progressed to have ammunition and guns and firepower mm-hmm. and work in groups to take these things down pretty yeah handily. I would yep. imagine. And then these Buffalo, yeah, they can run fast, but it's straight line running. So you yeah. just seem to take, get out of the way and take one down. And all you have to do is separate it from the herd. Right. Cause once yeah. they're separated from the herd, their strength is in numbers. Right. Like you said, they're a herd, the herd animal, herd mentality and everything. Cause they're strong. I predators don't mess with a herd of Buffalo. They mess with sick ones or calves or when, you know, ones that they can separate. So like, I mean, it's easy to take down. It's just, it's fucking lazy, I think, too. Selfish yeah. and lazy. I mean, it's lazy work. There was there was stories about some of these hide hunters that, you know, they would have guys rotating guns. That So they'd shoot a gun, they'd have a guy hand them yeah. another one, and they'd kill yeah. thousands of buffalo in a, a few-day period. And, one, like, one guy, you know what I mean? Would, that's, mm-hmm. that's how that would go. Yeah. Well, so okay. people have said that buffalo aren't smart. Because they allowed themselves to be murdered like this, basically. But they talk about white-tailed deers being smart because they are so elusive and whatever. This is a flawed way of thinking about animal behavior. This is from the book. Because it operates on the assumption that animals evolved with the sole concern of avoiding human predation. The smart ones figured it out. The dumb ones didn't. In fact, many animals put a much greater emphasis on energy preservation and territorial defense than they do on avoiding predators. It doesn't necessarily suit an animal's needs to burn precious calories by running like hell every time a predator appears, especially if the animal encounters a lot of predators that are unable to make a sex, a successful attempt at killing it. So what do Buffalo, I mean, Buffalo are facing wolves and bears and coyotes. That's what they're used to. And then all of a sudden here comes humans. We have tools that kill them from a distance. They don't even know what's hitting them. Sure. You know what I mean? So that was, that was part of it. It's a way to rationalize us being complete, completely horrible people. Yeah. Something like, in order, oh, they're they're just not smart enough, so yeah. we should kill them. Like that's just rationalizing us. The buffalo didn't. Ever, they never were able to adapt to this like onslaught because in a in twelve years. Yeah, in twelve. What are you going to adapt to? And people were shooting them from a hundred yards away, two hundred yeah. yards away, three hundred yards away. Right. You, deer have adapted to this over. 100 years 200 years you know what i mean so it takes even, time like like you said they don't they don't focus on avoiding us they focus on building fat for the winter and eating yeah their natural defenses are in numbers and that works with yeah. natural predators but we're right. we are natural predators but we use unnatural means you know what i mean hmm. so things continue on talking about his hunt specifically I, I'm gonna. This part is near the end of his 
hunt story. So he's been hunting a, a buffalo in Alaska for about 10 days out in the wilds. I mean, they're like, if you get lost out there, you die type thing. And he's near the end. So he's he's found a buffalo. He's found a herd. It took nine days from them to find it. I thought this was really important for people who haven't hunted. And then people who have, they they, they totally get this. I sense a slight nervousness wash over me. There's a year's worth of food contained within that animal, but also a life. The seriousness of what I'm about to do feels like a great weight, but the weight has an inertia that carries itself forward. I raise my rifle, just as so many people have before me have raised spears and at laddles, bows and muskets. I slip the safety forward with my thumb and lift the rifle until my eyes looking through the scope. Under magnification, the buffalo seems to be drawn closer to me. The buffalo's side is smooth and muscled. The ribs from, are hidden from view by a layer of fat. The shoulder moves slowly underneath the hide like a human body stirring underneath a blanket. I position the crosshairs of the scope just below the halfway point beneath the buffalo's brisket and back, about five inches behind the rear edge of the shoulder blade. I don't want to hit anything but the lungs. This is how food is made. I touch the trigger and as the rifle recoils, I glimpse the buffalo's body fall through the scope as it lurches forward, downward first, and then quickly upward, a lung shot. So, it's a crazy moment where, especially with like these bigger animals, you know you're going to take the life. And I thought that was a really interesting way to talk about it. I, I This was even better. Killing a large animal inevitably gives me a sense of sorrow. I know it will hit me before it does. The way you go to bed drunk knowing you'll be hungover in the morning. It hits me as I run my fingers through the tangled mane of the buffalo's neck. The animal feels so solid, so substantive. I feel compelled to question what I've done, to compare the merits of its life with the merits of my own. It's not so much a feeling of guilt. There's no moment when I want the buffalo to stand back up and walk away. No moment when I wish that that bullet would retreat back into the barrel. It's more complicated than guilt. Seeing the dead buffalo, I feel an anglimation of many things. Thankfulness for the meat, an appreciation for the animal's beauty, a regard for the history of its species, and yes, a touch of guilt. Any of those feelings would be a passing sensation, but together they make me feel emotionally swollen. The swelling is tender, a little bit painful. This is the curse of the human predator. Yeah. Yeah, I really like that. It's, uh, I don't hunt myself, but I grew up around, uh, my best friend and his family did, and I kind of mm-hmm. grew up around a little bit, like very lightly kind of fringe they basically, from what I learned from them, is if you don't have that certain sense of guilt or questioning about taking a life of an animal, then you shouldn't be doing it. It's, I mean, these guys went out west with their muskets and shit, and probably never thought twice about killing thousands. So, yeah, great example of right. You shouldn't do it. There's a couple more really meaningful passages that he makes, and it's the story of him butchering the animal and getting it out because. It was he almost died getting the the meat and all of that out. He almost died of frostbite, and it's all a really good story. But he ends this portion of the tale with a simple suggestion, which is let the buffalo roam free. Which, 
brings me to the happy stuff. So we talked about some of the nasty, gross, sad stuff. We did. And yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, whatever you say. This is where Teddy Roosevelt comes into this. You know him. You. I told you he was coming in. You like Teddy. I think. So in 1883, Teddy Roosevelt went out to Montana and hunted buffalo. Okay. And he killed he killed a buffalo. After the kill, Teddy danced enthusiastically around to celebrate his success. He went on another buffalo hunt in 1889. He became more sanguine about the loss of the species, reflecting, For several minutes I watched the great beasts as they grazed. Mixed with the eager excitement of the hunter was a certain half-melancholy feeling as I gazed on these bison, themselves part of the last remnant of a doomed and nearly vanished race. Few indeed are the men who now have or ever more shall have the chance of seeing the mightiest of American beasts in all his wild vigor, surrounded by the tremendous desolation of his far-off mountain home. So this was a big turning point for, for Teddy. He has these moments, right, like with John Muir. When he became president, he started, let's see, in 1907, the Bronx Zoo and American Buffalo Association began shipping bison out to the west in an attempt to repopulate the American plains from which the bison had been decimated. President Roosevelt supported the first three reintroductions at the Wichita Mountains Reserve, the Wind Cave National Park, and the National Bison Range. He knew what needed to be done, and he made the politics happen to do it. By the end of his term, a lot of this stuff had started, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. And so... Actually, while Obama was president, this is further conservation efforts now. It is in the recognition of the bison central place in the national nation's national history, right? The National Bison Legacy Act was passed, and the American bison became the United States national mammal, uh, which is actually, it happened just on the first Saturday of November. So, so the bison is our national mammal? Yep, and we just celebrated um. National Bison Day. It's the first yeah. first Saturday in November. Well, that's a good consolation. Bison are now being used, this is kind of cool, to regenerate prairie grasslands of the Midwest like they, hmm. you know. Weird like they should have been. Yeah, instead of these giant farm lands, which large-scale farming decimates the landscape and ruins the soil, they're returning bison to these places and yeah. allowing them to range freely, which is, wow. you know, bringing back the grasslands. Yeah, it's weird how nature just knows what it's doing. Bison are now found in all 50 states and in Canada. Oh, that's great. They, they've come a long ways from the 325 in 1885. I, uh, I don't even want you to say that again. Yeah, it's crazy. It's huh? just crazy. I'm going to wrap things up now. We've been going for a while. I appreciate you being here and sitting here with me through this. I reflected on this pretty heavily. I came up with, we have a duty we have a responsibility to the animals and to the land of this earth, whether we asked for it or not. We're the most dominant species on the planet, and throughout history we've damaged our resources and sometimes irreparably. The bison remains the constant reminder of the impact that humans can have, both in horrendous and tremendous ways. Pushed to the brink of extinction by the ignorant greed of man, this beautiful animal would be gone forever if not for the work of those who knew its significance to our history and also nature's history. Not just as Americans, but as people who live in this world. We're a part of this world. We don't own it. 
we have the ability to wipe a species from the face of this earth, or we can save them. We can help them thrive alongside us. We have a duty to clean up after ourselves. We have a duty to recycle. We have a duty to clean out our fire pits, to manage wildlife appropriately. We have a duty to connect to the world around us. We have a duty to manage nature in a way that we can all enjoy it and for generations to come. We have a duty to those who would threaten the things that ground us to our past and motivate us to be better in the future. I call upon you to take it upon yourself to teach and connect with those around you, to walk in our woods and our streams and feel the fertile soils of our prairies. Spread the message of our solemn duty to preserve and fight for those who cannot always fight back. Get outside and reconnect to your warrior within. Certainly. Great. Well, my friend, that I was in a much better mood before this, and I thank you for bringing history to light. The Buffalo are on the rebound, though, and I say let them roam as well. They're in the best position they've been in in 200 years. Great. So, That's good. Yeah. All right, my friend. We'll be back next week. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of the Weekly Warrior Podcast. This was Jared and Corey, and we want to remind you to please leave us a rating and a review on our iTunes. And you can also now find us on YouTube, where you can see us record these episodes live and uncut. Until next week, as always, be well. <laughs>